0: You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Middle East Analysis once again in the studio. What a great pleasure. And once again with my good friend, Dr. Harry Hagopian. Harry, how are you?
1: I'm fine. Thank you very much, James. You know, as I was coming to your studio, I noticed that in the train and at the station, there were hardly any people wearing face masks anymore. So in the United States, in continental Europe, they're still extremely conscious. I think we seem to have decided to put it behind us and move forward. I had my face mask and I looked very much like a sore thumb in the
0: train. Well, when I saw you through the window, I thought, oh my goodness, it's an alien. But no, <laughs> it was the only person in Britain still wearing a face mask, Dr. Harry Hugopian. No, you're absolutely right. Good observation. Now, look, we are keeping this tight today. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fantastic to have you here. It's one of those rare occasions where I can talk to you a bit about my experiences of the region. Indeed. Because I don't often go. I did go from the 21st to the 26th of May, as I think we spoke about a little bit when we dedicated our last podcast to the Palestinian journalist killed in Geneva which we will talk about, Shireen Abu Akleh. And yes, I spent some time primarily in and around Jerusalem, which is a, a lovely city, a very challenging city. I find myself scratching my head sometimes as much as admiring it. Again, we'll come on to that. I'd like to start, if you don't mind, Harry, by talking about Shireen Abu Akleh, because it was something that was very close to us in the month of May, for obvious reasons. And... Actually, what wasn't part of our delegation's itinerary was a meeting with her family. But that Mm -hmm. did happen. That happened in the Arab neighborhood of Bet Hanina. And we met her brother, her nieces. And and it was a very moving experience and, and quite apt, actually, Harry, that you spoke about your connection with her in our last podcast.
1: I did, and yes, it is still something that is reverberating both in my own head and my own heart, and it is still having its fallout across. Many many countries. I mean, I've I've heard a U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, time and again saying that there should be an independent investigation. Mm. I've uh, heard many a time Al Jazeera Network saying that there should be an investigation. We're still waiting to see if the International Criminal Court at The Hague is going to open an investigation on this uh, murder. Shirin Abu is not the only person who has died. Mm. She's one of the few journalists and a very, very well-known journalist. She's a household name and she was a household name. I'm confusing my tenses again. Everybody who watched the news on Al Jazeera and scores and scores of people across the whole swathe of the Middle East, North Africa and the Gulf region do so. She was a household name, and so she's come to epitomize a little bit the ferocity of an occupation, of an apartheid system, of the arrogance of an occupier who decides to get rid of those people that it does not approve of. And over and above this, one of the reasons why I have, in my very humble and modest way, also pushed the envelope a little bit, is because the Abu Akhle family are also known to my family. You talked about Beit Hanina. Beit Hanina is in the in northern suburb of Jerusalem. It's where Shireen lived before she was killed. And Shireen and my sister went to school together at the Rosary Sisters in Beit Hanina and my brother is a very good friend of her brother, Tony. So there are already, and it's a small world, particularly in this little world, as you know, the community knows each other. And the good thing about this is that if there is such a thing as a good thing about a cruel and crass murder, is that It is no longer a question of Muslim or Christian. It's a question of we are all Palestinians. It's the national identity. It's not the religious identity. So unlike other countries in the MENA region, in the Levant, where confessionalism plays a role, in Palestine, perhaps because there is a common foe, an occupation, Christians and Muslims come together. So people in Bethlehem, people in Jerusalem, people in the northern towns of Palestine in the West Bank, all came together. And you could see this in the funeral that took place and all the upsetting scenes that we watched there. And God only knows how her family felt seeing this poor woman's coffin almost dropping to the ground. So in a way, yes, it is important that this is investigated independently. This is not something that could be done by Israel because there will be partiality issues. It's not something that could be done alone by the Palestinians, because some people in the West would say, oh, of course, you can't believe what they're doing. So it has to be impartial. And impartial, as a lot of independent lawyers and jurists and human rights organizations have said, not least Salem in Israel itself, that it has to be independent so that we can once and for all put the label to this murder, which joins up with other journalists and, of course, many more non-journalists who've died in resisting an occupation that has gone on for far too long. Yeah, it's an interesting
0: point you make as well about the fact that this is one person, you know, a person much respected, much loved, with the human dignity to uphold. But actually, being there, we talk about things from 2,000 miles away, don't we? But this really, really hit me quite hard, especially being in the region, looking at all the posters, feeling the outpouring from from all sides, actually, of grief. In fact, some days later, after this meeting, spent a few hours chatting to a couple of journalists on a rooftop, literally overlooking that hospital. And obviously, I saw the rather distressing scenes, admittedly, through social media posts and other things. And it really drove it home to me. And I thought, yes, this might be one person, one much-loved person. But very symbolically, it seems to sum up. Even the sort of falling casket sums up the whole issue, doesn't it?
1: And there is one additional point to make here, James. The occupying uh, authorities, Israel, often claims that somebody was injured, fatally injured or killed because they were throwing stones at the soldiers, because they were resisting the occupation, because they tried to stab a, a soldier or a religious person. And then they try to justify it in that way, although there is in my books as a lawyer and as a human being, no justification for murder. However, in this case, she wasn't doing any of those things. She was a well-known face covering a, a news item in Jenin, in the northern uh, part of with the West Bank of Palestine. With a press jacket on. With the press emblazoned on her flak jacket, and also on her helmet. So in a sense, that is what makes it uh, cruel, and I feel very, very much for the family. I feel for the family because of the grievous loss. I mean, her niece, uh, Lena. Uh, sometimes tweets about how they used to play wordle together and how they used to sort of seek the word that they're looking for. And all these things are going to be missing. But also what gives me a heavy heart is the fact that amidst a whole public Palestinian-wide grief, the family have not yet had, in my opinion, that moment of privacy to grieve for uh, her loss because you have to grieve before you can start healing. And that is what I pray that will happen uh, to them as the weeks and months go forward. And that is why I want justice to be not only seen or said because words are cheap, actions are difficult, but because it is important that this happens uh, so that we can then move forward and so that the family, more importantly, can move forward too. Yeah, it's a very fair point
0: about that private grief. And I think that's perhaps been overlooked. Now, clearly, there are, sadly, there are other things going on. And I saw that you tweeted, Harry, about the situation in in South Hebron. So bring me up to date a little bit on that, please.
1: Well, the situation in South Hebron, it's basically about 15, 20 kilometers south of Hebron. There is a place called Masafir Yatta. Masafir Yatta basically has about 1,000 people in it. It's a small community in distributed in some 19 hamlets, and it's in the southern hills of Hebron. And what has happened is that for years now, the Israeli authorities, the occupation authorities, are trying to evict those Palestinians who live there, and they live there in very nomadic, Bedouin-style livelihoods. And they've been trying to get rid of them because that area that they occupy is considered by Israel as a military training zone. And it's known as firing zone 918. And they have wanted to get rid of those people from there. And the Palestinians there, the residents of Masafir Yatta, have been resisting the Israeli attempts at evicting them until recently when the Israeli high court said, oh, yes, you have the right to evict them because they're they're seasonal settlers. They're not uh, there all the time, which is not entirely true. They basically picked and chose parts of a report that they had from an anthropologist on these communities in those 19 hamlets. And therefore, now Israel says, oh, well, the high court said we can evict them, so we will evict them. And of course, what is also known, and you can ask any Palestinian anywhere across the whole of Palestine, what they think of the Israeli high court, and they say it's a tool in Israel's armor, and it's not one that basically meets out fair justice. So what I would like to do is to sensitize people that when we talk about Shirin Abu Akhle, when we talk about all those killings, when we talk about the, what is happening there, there are so many things that put together from settlers occupying Palestinian-occupied land and uh, settling down there, although Israeli law still doesn't apply to them. Israel is trying but hasn't succeeded yet to extend its own domestic law from the recognized borders to those settlers on Palestinian-occupied territory. You have the settlers you were there, you saw, you were telling me off mic, you saw the flags, uh, the Jerusalem day when all the Israelis, well, the radical Israelis were out with flags uh, trying to prove that Jerusalem is the one and only eternal universal capital of Israel. And I say, what a load of boulder Dash because all it takes is one anybody to go from West Jerusalem to East Jerusalem or vice versa, from East Jerusalem up Newgate to West Jerusalem to Jaffa Road. And you can see that the country is an entirely different country, both demographically and otherwise. And the only thing that really I would say about those flags is the fact that when all these very sort of impassioned Israeli radicals, and they were radicals, some of them, were carrying those flags and chanting death to Arabs. Nobody actually stopped and said, hold on, if a Palestinian said death to Jews, they would find themselves in jail before you can blink an eye. It's a hate what crime. happened? Yeah, it's a hate crime. What about them? But as they were doing all this and as Israel was passing laws and saying that Palestinians do not have the right to use any flags, even in official meetings, if ever there will be one between Palestinian and Israeli delegations, what happened? A drone flying over the group of flag bearers was carrying a Palestinian a flag, And I said to myself, good on you. Whoever used that technology to make a point, bravo. And basically, the reason I'm saying this is because put the settlements, put the flags, put the arrogance, the impunity, put the murders, Shereen Abu Masafir Yatta, everything else that's happening, the attacks on the Jenin refugee camp and what have you. And what do you get? You only get a constant reminder, a constant affirmation that the Palestinians are living not only under occupation, but they're living in a truly apartheid-like system that I would go so far as to say is worse than the one experienced by South Africans many years ago before Nelson Mandela changed everything. That sense of Nelson Mandela, that sense of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, even that sense of the political establishment at the time which helped South Africa migrate from apartheid to a majority rule system, that system doesn't even exist yet in Israel. So things are dire and things are saddening.
0: Strong statement, got to say. Now, look, I wanted to talk to you a bit about my experiences in the West Bank, in Jifna, and then obviously travelling to Bethlehem. I'll keep that relatively short because I think you've sort of focused in there on the important points. But just, just for me, one or two of those journeys that I made were were poignant and a reminder that not only have things not changed, I think also I felt things have got slightly worse, actually, because you look at the sort of geography now of that particular region and you think, well, I can't even see the possibility of of a contiguous Palestinian state. So and to remind dead, our listeners, basically.
1: James, that this is not this wasn't your first uh, trip. So you're comparing how yeah, five you years saw it. Actually.
0: Yeah. I was looking at, you know, E1 that yeah. I looked at in 2017, and then just the the experience of travelling now. And it was um, disheartening, would I I think be the word. So, yeah, um, lots of experiences there, not all positive ones. But I did want to ask you one question about Jerusalem, because that's where we spent most of our time. I'll keep it very brief. I put a social media post out where I described it as holy, beautiful, challenging and complicated. How would you describe Jerusalem, the modern
1: day Jerusalem? Beautiful but sad. Yeah, pretty much what I
0: experienced. Pretty though.
1: much what you experienced <laughs> and pretty much what you said, but you said it in a more picturesque, in a more tourist-like way. I was reaching uh, for it, yeah. yeah. Yes, you were reaching out and reaching for it. In my case, because some of my genes uh, can are found in Jordan and in Palestine, I can relate to it on a more guttural, intuitive way. Uh, sense than somebody who's flying in to compare a lapse of five years. And for me, it's in the Bible, Jerusalem is described as Jerusalem, the golden and people who go to Jerusalem say you have to go there to feel the distinctiveness, the special attribute of Jerusalem. That's true. It's beautiful. But that attribute, that beauty is being washed away by the sadness of all the arrogance and the occupation. I have written in the past papers about how I would resolve the Israel Palestine conflict. I have been involved with second track negotiations on the Jerusalem file with very good colleagues of mine, but also on the broader conflict. I have worked with all the churches, Orthodox, Catholic and Anglican, to try and find a way out of it. The problem is not to find a new narrative or to reject an old narrative. The problem is to find the goodwill and the good faith in order to make that happen. And at the moment, that goodwill and good faith in Israel, in the government of Naftali Bennett, who is basically surviving on the barest of minorities, is in existence. So much so that the United States, Israel's major ally, said that it wants to convene a meeting of Palestinians and Israelis together to discuss a way of relaunching negotiations so we do not, as we seem to be, gradually walking into a third intifada, and it's not in America's interest to see that happen, Uh, Anthony Blinken said, let's get together in Jerusalem, in Amman, in Washington, in the presence of the Jordanian and Egyptian delegations as the two mediators who've always tried to temper down the conflict. Let's do that. What was Israel's answer? No, we don't want to do that. So it's wonderful to see that in politics now, the
0: tail wags the dog. Well, I thought about you a lot when I was out there for obvious reasons. And I thought actually, temporarily, about the Oslo Accords, about Yitzhak Rabin, about Bill Clinton, about Yasser Arafat. And you just, you sort of look around and you think, it's a near miss, wasn't it really? But we've not really got any closer. You can talk about the failure of the Oslo Accords, but it was
1: close, I think. You talk about the failure of the Oslo Accord. the question is... What do you replace it with? And there is a black hole, a vacuum. And the one thing that the laws of physics abhor is a black hole because it sucks in everything and destroys it. And at the moment, given the intemperate behavior of the Israeli occupation forces, given the powerlessness let alone the political senility of some of Palestinian decisions on the ground, you would wonder what is uh, the way out. And that brings us full circle to, you know what the way out is? The way out is to sit here and mourn the death of a wonderful woman in her midlife, Shirin Abu Akli. Very
0: well said. Now, Harry, we really should also talk about some of the other things going on in the region. And once again, I'm giving you the opportunity to surprise me. Where would you like to start?
1: Well, I'm not going to take much time talking about the afterthoughts or the other regions. What I'm going to say is basically to draw our listeners' attention to some of the other things that are happening outside the Palestinian scope or zone, The first thing I would invite listeners to follow and maybe in future months when you've come back from all your globe trotting, which I believe you're going to start tomorrow. I
0: thought you were going to say gallivanting.
1: uh, Well, I didn't want to use that word. Maybe we can explore some of these in a later episode next month or the month after. One is please keep in mind what's happening in Sudan. Yeah. Sudan had basically... Uh, become very active and very worrying and concerning and then it settled down and people were pretending that there's going to be a solution where uh, you would have a civilian government takeover from the military one that's running the country at the moment. A couple of days ago, the UN envoy Volker Pertes managed to get some of the parties together to try and kickstart such a solution. It's not yet sure that it will happen. Sudan is one of those what I call Arab Revolutionary Uprising's Mark II case. So keep an eye on Sudan. Keep also an eye on Tunisia. And we've touched upon Tunisia in the past, where the president of Tunisia suddenly has decided that he's the only person who knows anything about anything in Tunisia. He's going around. He sacked 57 judges. Uh, there is a strike of the judiciary in Tunisia at the moment. He wants to rewrite the Constitution. He wants to do everything. He Journalists. wants to Journalists, Science. exactly. He wants to outlaw some of the political parties, all this in an attempt to try and re centralize power in his hands, which is what was before the uprisings, what we used to call then the Arab Spring happened. So, that also, I think, is quite worrying for me this whole dissolution of parliament, uh, sacking of judges, etc. So, please, uh, listeners, Have an eye on Tunisia as well. Then another North African country in the in my famous Mina and Gulf neighborhood is Morocco and Algeria, where relations have soured yet even more, as it were, because. Uh, Relations have never been that good, actually, between Algeria and Morocco. And Morocco has normalized of sorts with Israel. Algeria is exactly the opposite of that. And their problem has always been, to a large extent, the Western Sahara and the role that the Polisario would play in running that Western Sahara versus what Morocco wants, which is to say that this is mine and I run it. And uh, this has actually, again, made relations more tense and it has not only affected diplomatic relations, which are pretty much non-existent at the moment between Algeria and Morocco, but it has also impacted Spain, the neighbor, because Spain has sided with Morocco and Algeria has taken offence, has taken umbrage and has decided that doesn't like that. So there are all sorts of political issues that are happening there in a country, Algeria, which is not the most stable at the moment anyway. So please keep in mind Algeria and uh, Morocco as well. And last but not least, in my opinion, I would say yesterday, and this just came to me when you suggested that we do our monthly episode today, this week in Palestine, a fantastic coverage of all forms and sorts of Palestinian news, both written and virtual i.e online. And what I would say is for people to just spend two minutes, go online this week in Palestine, oneword.com. If you go online and look at the richness and diversity of this, uh, week in Palestine, which I refer to as TWIP, T-W-I-P, is fantastic. And you can read this and not only read this, but for crying out loud, all those people who support Palestinian aspirations, who want to support ordinary Palestinians, forget politics. We're talking ordinary Palestinians. Disseminate. Subscribe to this magazine, e Donate. Do something with it. It's a wonderful, wonderful magazine. And I just uh, tweeted this morning one of their stories, which actually was about Shirin Abu Akhle, written by her niece, uh, Lina Abu Akhle. And I said in my tweet that last night I read it and I had goosebumps reading it because of the intensity you can see behind the words that her niece had used to talk about her aunt. So this is all I want to say at the moment. I don't want to digress into other areas and uh, even the Ukraine with all the uh, permutations. So I will stop here if you have anything you want to add James. One small thing. We've got 2 or 3 minutes left on our target of half
0: an hour which I cannot believe we've even got near. But there we go. You talk about real Palestinians in inverted commas and and this week in Palestine being a, a good vehicle to understand a bit more. But we took a bus to the checkpoint to enter the West Bank to go to Bethlehem and it was interesting because obviously The bus was stopped, the road was closed off, and we spent about 45 minutes where all the Palestinians were having their IDs checked, I I couldn't quite tell why. And actually during that time, we were sitting on the back of the bus with a young Palestinian man, Who started singing Polish songs with my good friend, (laughs) our our Polish photographer Marcin, which was hilarious to to hear that the both of them swaying on the back of the bus where everyone else is looking annoyed and held up and fed up that they've, you know, got up at four in the morning to pass the checkpoint, to go and work in hotels and other places in Jerusalem, to come back exhausted at four o'clock. They've lost 45 minutes. And here are these two interesting characters at the back, a Palestinian and a Pole singing away in Polish.
1: It's a fascinating story, and you'll tell me offline how come this Palestinian was singing in Polish. But what I would also say is that the whole of the Palestinian topography is littered with checkpoints, what is known in uh, Hebrew as Mahsumot or in Arabic as Mahsoum. And uh, they are there, partly I acknowledge For security from an Israeli official perspective, but they're also there to disrupt and frustrate Palestinians and show you who is the boss, who is the master in that land. And if this doesn't prove apartheid, I don't know what does. But what's quite
0: sad, actually, is quite often you're looking at maybe 18, 19 year old young women with guns
1: being asked to do that job. No one
0: really wins in that particular scenario.
1: Absolutely. And imagine the psychological impact that this would have on those young uh, male and female soldiers brandishing their gun strapped on their shoulder. I've seen them so many times trying to be lord and master or uh, in that particular situation when you have an old man of 60 or 50 or 70 Palestinian wanting to cross the checkpoint and they say, no, you stand there, face the wall. Imagine the humiliation, apartheid on one side, and the humiliation which engenders bitterness, bitterness which then could sometimes lead to vindictiveness. And a little postscript from me on that young Palestinian
0: man. He travelled with us, we walked with him through the checkpoint, and you know what it's like, you cross the checkpoint, it's a frenzy of cabs trying to get you into a cab to drive you wherever you want to go, uh, which we resisted. And this young man sort of wanted to show us a few things. He was n- exhausted because he'd been up since 4 he'd worked in a hotel he he was coming back he lived another i don't know another 3 or 4 kilometers away but couldn't really afford a cab so he was going to walk it and we all you know what we're like we're a bit cynical in the west and we were sort of thinking oh she probably wants something and fair enough why wouldn't you no he wanted to have a chat he wanted to be friendly he wanted to sing songs he wanted to, he was normal very decent to us and said, have a nice day, I've, I've got to get my head down because I've got to work in the morning.
1: You've, you, you used a very interesting word there, which is also a key word as far as I'm concerned, James, and that is he wanted to be a normal person. And what we in the West and a lot of the people in the West, including our media in the West forget, is that Palestinians are also normal humans. Just think about the stories that are covered and the stories that are not covered from that part of the world. And you wonder if if some of these people think that these people there come from another planet or another zone. They don't. They're human beings with hopes and dreams as well as frustrations and disappointments. And that is what we should understand to value their humanity and not only talk abstract issues about narratives and what have you. I'm not going to waste words trying to top that. So for this month,
0: Harry, thank you ever so much for your time. My pleasure.